<laughs> Isn't she a doll? Well, let's turn in our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 8. We're going through the book of Revelation as we finish up the, the Bible. Come to the 8th chapter. And this is an acceleration of the tribulation period that in one sense is a bit disturbing. Up until now, as we saw the seal judgments, they seem to be an escalation of all the ways in which people get killed through disease, through war, oppression, starvation, a, a failing economy. We saw all of these elements that are happening, and, and we saw last week how despite this time of trouble, in fact, because of the time of trouble, tons of people get saved because there are some people who just won't get the message that they need to submit themselves to God until times get difficult. And so these times result in a lot of people dying, but they also, it also results in a lot of people getting saved. But now, when the seventh seal is open, and as they increased in their intensity, now when you get to the seventh seal, all hell breaks loose. It, things get much worse than they were before. But the puzzling thing here in chapter 8 is that it seems like in this case, the judgment is more on mother nature than it is on people. It obviously affects people, but these judgments, and, and a lot of times for us, we might look at it and go, now if God's pouring out his wrath, these trumpets announce his judgment, why is he picking on nature? Well, I mean, nature hasn't done anything wrong. Nature's beautiful. I, why can't he do like a neutron bomb where it kills the people, but it leaves everything else unscathed? But I think as we go through it, we'll discover that there's a reason why God pours his wrath out on creation itself. It's all designed to draw people to him. That's, that's his intent all along. But let's look through this thing and then back off a little bit and see what's going on here in these trumpet judgments, the first four of which are in chapter 8 here. The chapter begins, when he opened the seventh seal, the completeness of his judgment, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, some people have suggested this proves that there are no women in heaven <laughs> or children. I, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying some people. I think it's a horrible thing to say. But there's silence. Now, you get the idea from the silence that something eerie is going on. Up until this point, in heaven, it's explosive. There are, there's beautiful things going on. There's praise everywhere. There are rainbows and emerald seas and all that kind of stuff. <coughs> now we're getting to a point where all of a sudden, nothing. And, you know, if, if I decided to illustrate this for you, I could just stop right now, say for five minutes, and it would be really awkward. Some people would be calling 911. I think, there's, I think our pastor's had a stroke. Something's wrong with him. Somebody would usher me off the stage. But a half hour of silence in a, in a place that's so vibrant with activity, it's definitely a calm before a storm. It's an attention-getting device. One thing that teachers learn, if you're a teacher or you, you know, have been trained as one, silence is a powerful weapon. 
if as a teacher you raise your voice over the sound of the noise in the classroom, you're always outnumbered because your students can make more noise than you can. But a good teacher knows when to get quiet. And then the class goes, wait, what's going on? A good teacher whispers instead of yells. Bad teacher yells. There's a time maybe when yelling might be effective, but generally not. So there's this pause, there's this silence and for half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Seven angels, seven trumpets. Each time a trumpet sounds, another judgment's going to take place. And remember, these seven judgments are all a part of the seventh seal. So these angels, another angel, a different one, had a golden censer. It's a a device that you use to burn incense in. And he came and he stood at the altar and he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Prayer and incense were used together throughout the Old Testament. The idea of incense is that something that smells really sweet ascends up. And so as it ascends up, it speaks of God's response to our prayers, that he loves to hear from us, and therefore our prayers ascend like incense. And so the connection is made throughout the scriptures. So here an angel is given a censer, and there's incense in it that's ascending up, but it also contains the prayers of all Christians. Every prayer that's ever been prayed kind of represented here. The idea is God is about to answer in a huge way every prayer that's been prayed. So he says, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So get this. There's a lot of praise and everything happening. Judgment's going on on the earth. All of a sudden, it's quiet. And then silently, this incense begins to go up, along with all prayers of all times, ascending with the incense. And then out of the silence... The angel takes this censer and goes, boom, and slams it to the earth. And an explosion of thunder and lightning. I mean, it's just everything's happening now. It's an amazing explosion. I don't know about you, but for most of you guys, you probably remember the first thrill that you ever had of blowing something up. Now, today, they'll accuse you of being a terrorist if you do it. It was just a rite of passage for us, and for some of us, it lasted a little longer than others. Um, I know some full-grown men that still love to blow things up. Um, but this out of the silence is an explosion. Now, it's weird, because you get the idea that somehow the explosion and the judgments that are about to take place are connected to prayer, so prayers are going up, and the source of the prayer is thrown down, and it's like, boom, here you go. And then these trumpet judgments. Strange, hard to figure in some respects, but let's look at them first, and then we'll back up and try to get a perspective. Verse 7, the first angel sounded. 
trumpet played, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood or death and redness, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. So there's this burning hail that's bloody, that's thrown to the earth, and it it burns a third of the trees, and it wipes out all the golf courses. All the grass is gone instantly from this disaster. And that's the first judgment. Now again, why pick on trees? Why pick on grass? It's, it's puzzling. And how in the world does the destruction of plant life connect with the prayers of the saints? Um, we'll answer that, I hope, in a moment. But as you're still stunned by this, these flaming hail-like things that hit the earth, whether it's some kind of meteorite shower or something like that, we don't know. This is just the way John describes it as he witnessed it. The second angel sounded, verse 8, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood or full of death. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships that were in the sea were destroyed. So it was like a mountain that was on fire that went into the sea. Now, first of all, let me say, when, when they would talk about the sea, in general, they weren't necessarily talking about the oceans around the world. They didn't know about the rest of the world. When they would say sea, they were referring to the, what they called the Great Sea, what we call the Mediterranean Sea. Now, this would be a pretty accurate description of major volcanic activity. Could have happened all over the world. Certainly feasible. There are still very active volcanoes surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. You have like Mount Vesuvius and others. Italy is just a massive activity, volcanic activity, still alive today. So if you see this molten mountain come up and run into the sea and it damages the sea life and it does damage to even ships that are on the sea, you can realize what a disaster can happen just through volcanic activity. Perhaps this is just a supernatural, like a mountain coming down and hitting the sea, some sort of uh, phenomenon that God directs, that could have happened too. It may refer to the whole sea. It may refer to just that area. But the death and destruction that happens within the sea, again, yeah, it destroys ships, but most of this seems directed at the sea itself and the life, fish, and things like that within the sea. Kind of strange. Like, why is God mad at the sea? Why is he mad at trees? Um, again, I think we'll see in a little bit. But then the third trumpet sounds. As you're puzzled with that, a great star fell from heaven. Now remember, the word star that's used here in the Greek doesn't refer to stars as we call them stars. Um, it refers to any object that's floating around in space. So this could be referring to meteorites. It could be referring to an asteroid hitting the earth or something like that. The stars, as we know them, obviously couldn't fit in our planet without completely destroying it. But an asteroid could certainly do damage. Meteorites have done great damage in the past. But 
as it fell, it says, this time it seems like it hit the freshwater sources. It fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is wormwood. Wormwood was a kind of wood that was bitter, that if it, if it was in the water, it would destroy the water. And so it was named Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, became bitter. And many men died from the water because it was made bitter. So the third trumpet, remember the, before the volcanic activity polluted the salt water. And now whatever this is that strikes the earth destroys a third of the freshwater sources. So whatever does it, it's something that makes the water bitter and destroys it. And so this happens again. Now you had a bunch of the salt water in trouble. Now you have fresh water in trouble. This is obviously affecting people. But the emphasis is not on how it affects the people or the animals. The emphasis is on how it affects the planet. The noose is tightening around Mother Earth, if you will. And then while you're still recovering from that, the fourth trumpet sounds. And the fourth angel sounded in verse 12, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day didn't shine, and likewise the night. Now this doesn't mean literally that a third of the sun was taken away or a third of the moon was just broken off or that a third of the stars just burned out instantly. But the idea is, Something happens on the earth, and maybe as a result of these other trumpets, or maybe not, but there's an atmospheric change from some way where it's as if you took all of the sources of light from the universe and you turned them down 33%. It's like a third less bright. A third of the day is just disappears. Now, if you've ever been in a place, say, far north, where days are long and then where nights can be long too. It, it's weird. It puts your, it throws the rhythm of your body off when this is happening. Just like, even if you talk to people who live up in the Pacific Northwest, where in Oregon and Washington, where it's, you never see blue sky. You, it's just always cloudy. They are some of the most depressed people and there's an incredible number of suicides and things like that from people who live in that kind of environment. Now imagine if there's some sort of damage to our, our environment, to our atmosphere, in such a way that all of a sudden now a third less of the, of the light gets through. You're not only depressed, it obviously affects the rest of the vegetation that's left. It's going to affect the health of the people who are living here, turning down the sun, turning down the capacity for just all of the vitamins and everything that we receive from the sun, this would be a horrible thing. That all of a sudden we are enshrouded. The planet is feeling like, oh boy, this is, this is bad. And that's the fourth trumpet judgment. And I looked in verse 13, and I heard an angel flying through the middle of heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So after laying out what's happened so far, these four trumpets, 
They're going, you haven't seen anything yet. Because, whoa, 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 there are three more trumpets that are going to sound that are going to make this damage look like nothing. So you look at these judgments, you look at what's going on, and let's face it, you have to go, this is kind of weird because I thought what was wrong with the world was what people did. I thought the world was messed up because of sin. Now, it looks like the earth is being blamed. It looks like God is taking his wrath out on the earth in a worse way than ultimately he took it out on people. I mean, the pollution, the damage that happens during this time. And, and you, you feel like, wait a minute, I can see why God judges people, but why is he picking on Mother Earth? Now, I think there's a very good explanation and a very good reason why. In order to understand it, we have to talk about what is wrong with our planet and why people do what they do. There's a, there's a belief that is becoming pervasive in the world today, but it's as old as humanity almost, and that is something that is called pantheism. Pantheism is any belief system that identifies the creation with God. Pantheism believes that God is in everything and everything collectively is God. It's that when you look at a tree, that's God. It's a part of God. You look at people, they're part of God. Um, the sky and the water and all of it, it's all a part of God. It's all mixed up together. You collect everything and that's God. And there's also panentheism that believes that God is in everything. Now, it becomes confusing because people who believe the Bible see that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. But even though God is everywhere, God is not that chair. That chair isn't a part of God. God, God is everywhere. Together, he is distinct from his creation. But pantheism and panentheism teach that everything together pretty much equates with God. Now, there are various twists on this. Um, when you look at the philosophies, New Age philosophies, and, and people who look back, for instance, on like Al Gore does, he really loves the philosophies of the American Indian, for instance. The animism that they teach, and Al Gore talks about how beautiful it is when the Indian would say, hey, the earth does not belong to man, man belongs to the earth. And that's a typical pantheistic statement. And people like the sentiment of it because we love nature. We see a purity and a beauty in nature. And so it makes sense to believe that somehow that beautiful tree or that star must be God. Now, Druidism, uh, shamanism, and other things take variations on this. Uh, Druids and, and, and the shamans tend to believe that there are spirits somehow and we worship those spirits through worshiping creation. With the, the Druids, they, they would worship things like the water and you know, the divine presence wherever it is. Um, the, uh, you know, the people who believe in shamanism worship the spirits through the four basic elements of life, earth, wind, fire, and uh, water. 
And so that's their philosophy. Now, all of this stuff, and you hear it a lot, it, it pretty much all traces way back to basic Hinduism. Hinduism is called the oldest religion in the world. And, and I understand why they say that, and in some senses it probably is. Hinduism came from India, and Hinduism dates back to like 5000 BC. You can understand why they say, oh, it's the oldest religion in the world, because uh, Christianity only you know, goes back to 32 AD. Judaism, at where Israel is actually a nation, really goes to where the children of Israel are delivered from Egypt, and they become known as the Israelites as they go back to their promised land. That's only 1445 BC. Comparatively young when you compare it to Hinduism. Of course, Buddhism was only, you know, 500 BC, 500, BC. Buddhism was a spinoff from Hinduism. They rejected some of the tenets and added some of their own in. Islam is 7th century AD, a comparative baby as a religion compared to Hinduism. Hinduism believes that it, they tend to be pantheist or panentheist, but Hindus believe that, that the divine presence pervades and permeates everything. They believe that, that at least everything that's created is a part of or an expression of that which is divine. And, and they use the illustration, they say, hey, when you have a fire and it gives off sparks, those sparks are of the same essence as the fire. And so they would say, naturally then, everything that's created is either a divine part or it's something that is, in fact, equivalent to the divine. So either pantheism or panentheism. Are you still with me? So <laughs> that's, in a nutshell, Hinduism. They end up having tons of gods because they think anything that's made is a part of God. And so, you know, that's why when you see them and they say namaste, they put their hands together and they bow to each other and they say manast, namaste. That's a word that means I, I worship the form of you, literally, but what it really means is I am bowing down to the divine that is in you. That's why they do that. They're just saying, I recognize your divinity. They also, though, bow to inanimate objects, bow to beauty, bow to whatever, and say the same thing, that same greeting, because they would see everything that exists as being a part of the divine spirit. That's a really old belief from Hinduism. Buddhists adapted it, got a little more practical, came up with the idea of, look, uh, we don't know where this all came from. We don't even know if there's a God or not. But hey, the truth is, let's try to endure as best we can. And through karma and being reincarnated and everything, uh, hopefully something good comes out of all this. All of this collectively is the heritage of what has, is becoming the religion of the world nowadays. Now, today, with New Age religion or neo-paganism, there's the idea, um, you'll hear the word Gaia or Gaia, G-A-I-A. -A. It's a Greek word that means earth. And the philosophy or theology of Gaia worship is the worshiping of Mother Earth. The word Gaia was the name of a Greek goddess 
a very ample woman who was said to be the mother of everything. And so it's the, it's the focusing on and appreciation for Mother Earth. Now, with, with Gaia worship, then ultimately the task of created beings is to protect Mother Earth. It's to get to the, the sense is that she made us, but we have the capacity to destroy her. And pretty much all of modern ecology that sees everything as being this interrelated ecosystem and that is in danger, all of that, everything today industrially that involves sustainability, uh, everything that would tell people you should go back and be more primitive is all connected to this Mother Earth worship. And sometimes they'll describe it as Mother Earth, sometimes they won't. Wicca or witchcraft is a more or less pantheistic or panentheistic philosophy that believes that Mother Earth, and sometimes there are different, there are different uh, schools of thought in, in Wicca even, and different approaches, and, and some of them believe that there's a goddess who is a trinity. Some of them believe there's a god and goddess that together comprise that which creates and maintains who we are, but it's, it's a nature worship, essentially. And that's kind of what we have going on in the world today. It's the, and it's a growing philosophy that our God is our world and that she is in trouble and that we need to protect her. It's why people are so paranoid about the environment. It's why they care more about fish dying from a disaster than they care about people dying at the hands of other people because they feel like everything in the environment is close to the source of everything that sustains us. And so it's why the people who are scared to death about the global warming you know, and they've been predicting this for a long time. Al Gore won a big Nobel Prize for stating something that turned out to be a joke. And, and the scientists are completely tweaking the numbers. They, they don't have a problem totally distorting things and, and foisting fraud on people. And they're doing it for a good reason. They feel like they're defending their goddess. And they have to do it. And so... Their goddess is so weak that you using hairspray or a decent can of whipped cream threatens the goddess who made us all. And so, of course, they have to exert fraud in order to protect that which is our mother. Our mother is in danger. The Bible presents a little different approach. While appreciating the environment, it pictures a God who made the environment, who is separate from the environment, and it teaches that one day this environment was made and will be destroyed by the same God who made it. Now, the Bible doesn't exhort us to destroy the environment. It's not, let's kill the trees. In the Bible, man was given the environment as a gift from God and was told to protect it, to tend it, to subdue it, to, to basically keep an eye on it. It's certainly a shame that we have done that. But then to flip that around and to say our goddess is in big trouble because of what we do with our cans of whipped cream is ridiculous. 
And the notion of global warming, have you noticed that it's been cooling? All the data is establishing that actually we've gone through a, a big cooling trend. So how do they explain that? Well, they, Al Gore and others would say that, oh, this cooling is a part of global warming. Huh? Well, you know, if you think you're protecting your God, I guess I could understand that. But our God doesn't need protection. He is not threatened by our automobiles, our plants, our whipped cream, anything else that we use. It doesn't threaten him at all. Everything that you see, he made it, and he made it as a depiction of who he is. And if it's destroyed, it doesn't say anything about who he is. Now, what we're going to see more and more is people turning on Christians because the people who follow this guy of philosophy will come right out and tell you that Christianity is what is standing in the way of our further evolution. Because of the philosophy that we have, we are preventing evolution from occurring and therefore more and more we need to be stopped for the good of, of Mother Earth, for the good of Mother Nature. There was a document that the United Nations sponsored Convention on Biological Diversity came up with. It's, a, it's called the Global Biodiversity Assessment. And it explicitly refers to Christianity as a faith that has set humans apart from nature and stripped nature of its sacred qualities. And they say in the document, it states, conversion to Christianity has therefore meant an abandonment of an affinity with the natural world for many forest dwellers, peasants, fishers all over the world. And they go on and cite examples of parts of the world where at one point they had lakes that were off limits because it was holy ground. And there were forests that were there to simply promote that worship of Mother Earth that when Christianity comes, they go, oh, really? So this is, God made this, but it's not God? Therefore, we can actually drink the water? We can actually catch fish from the lakes? We can, and they're saying, the problem with that is that Christianity divides people from their affinity for the environment. And so they would, all of these tree huggers, all of these Gaia worshipers, and, and by the way, they see Gaia, Mother Earth, as being, in many cases, someone who can be personally related to. There are mystical connections and relationships that's come. They literally fall in love with this collective exhibition of, of creation. As a result, Christians are the enemy because we say, no, we are separate. We are different and our God is separate from creation. He is not so frail that global warming is going to kill him. And they see that as a threat because they assume that then we will just want to destroy the earth. And if their earth is destroyed, their God is destroyed. So they condemn Christianity as the root of all ecological evil. They actually say good things about Hinduism and Buddhism and some other faiths because they go, at least they keep us connected with our creation as a part of it. So, so what? I mean, yeah, obviously our world, it started out almost from the beginning with people worshiping 
creation, and that's gone on and continued, and now it is enjoying increased popularity as the New Age movement exhibits itself, and as people with a real warm connection to the planet. Okay, so, well, here's the deal. In fact, turn over to Romans chapter 1. Paul in Romans chapter 1 talks about how the world went wrong, and he ends up talking about all of the awful, shameful things that people do, all the immorality and wickedness and, and boasting and all. But here's how it starts. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. People don't want to know the truth because they don't want to do the right thing. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. God has revealed himself to people. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. He says, creation told so much about God that people should have been able to figure God out by saying, wow, to creation. And we see that that's a part of the worship in heaven, ultimately. So, so he goes, in the beginning, people didn't, they resisted what creation told them about God. But he goes on and says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful to him. But they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. So here's what Paul's saying. God made creation as a picture of who he is. But people didn't want to turn to the God who made the world because they didn't want to do what he said. So instead, they said, I don't want to worship a creator. I want to worship creatures. So I'll care about trees and animals, but I won't care about the God who made them. And, and Paul says, that's where everything came unraveled. That people saw what God made and they confused it with God. Kind of like somebody who you give them a present and they're so in love with the present that they don't even thank you, that, that, that they don't even remember who gave them the present. Oh, I got this awesome present. Oh, who gave it to you? Uh, I don't know, I think an aunt or grandma, somebody, but... You know, you feel like taking the present away and going, hey, if you're going to love the present and not the one who gives it, something's weird, something's mixed up. If you fall in love with someone because of a picture they post on the internet and, and then you meet them and you go, uh, can I just stick with the picture? <laughs> oh, but let's go out for dinner. Let me just take the picture out with me. You go, something's weird here. And it might have been the the Photoshop work on your picture or the fact that it's 30 years old. But, 
ultimately something's weird about somebody who loves a picture more than the person that it's a picture of. And so what Paul is saying here in Romans is that's where people got so messed up. And that is where people are messed up today because they are confused. They see what God made and they think that it made itself. They think that that must be God. Now, as believers, we should look at creation and appreciate it more than anyone does because we look at it and it, as Paul says, it declares God. It declares his attributes. You can see it in nature. So we certainly shouldn't be you know, just hacking down trees, but at the same time, if people are being destroyed by paganism, if people are being destroyed by worshiping a creature rather than a creator, something has to rescue them from their false assumptions. And the tribulation period is a time where God begins to take away every crutch, every substitute. It's not because he's mad at the trees and grass or the salt water or the fresh water. Not at all. What he is disturbed about is that people are following substitutes that are keeping them from him. See, it's only coming to know the true God through his son Jesus and putting your faith in him for salvation, that your problems will be solved. And that's why ultimately squeezing the noose around the neck of Mother Nature is the answer to all of the prayers that have ever been prayed, because everything that's wrong that we pray about ultimately cannot be addressed and fulfilled until we recognize and understand fully that, hey, Mother Nature is not God. All of this stuff is disposable, ultimately. God made it, he can wipe it out, he can make more better. But this is all about him, this is not him. And so, in the time of the tribulation period, what people have been counting on, and, and you can see what will happen to these pantheists and, and these Gaius when you know, and Hindus and everybody, when all of a sudden nature is destroying itself. From their perspective, it's going to look like mother nature is committing suicide. Because see, this isn't a bunch of people with spray cans killing the environment. This is the environment killing the environment. And they're going to go, mother nature is in a bad mood. She's, she's killing herself. This is weird. And the idea always is to remove the substitutes so that as many people as possible will go, I guess the story of Jesus makes better sense. Maybe there is a God beyond this because as we are seeing judgment poured out, it seems like he is even removing the object of our worship, that beautiful Mother Earth that we thought was so lovely, I mean, and we see the cruelty of nature against nature, even today, how much nature is destroyed by nature. And we talk about, oh, up in Yellowstone several years back, there's a forest fire. Well, it happened naturally, lightning hit a tree, so let's let it burn. This is natural. And it just made it bare land, and it took years for it to even begin to grow back. It wiped out, and people go, oh boy, nature. Nature was in a bad mood that day. And, and there's debate even among 
ecology freaks about how much should we intervene to protect nature from herself. Well, in this day, there isn't anything you can do about it. Nature is choking itself, destroying itself, and now the biggest alternative to a belief in God is being wiped out. That pantheism, that Hinduism, that sense of worshiping our great mother earth. And I think that's what God's doing. Remember, all of this, it's not against the earth. He can make more. But this is about him taking away options so that people will ultimately see the only thing left is that there's a God outside of all this. There's a God who is working and drawing people to himself. And that's the message that we need to take away from this horrible time. It's awful, but it takes drastic measures to address people who have been for thousands of years immersed in the notion that somehow a tree is God. Cut that tree down, remove that tree, remove that grass. They start to look for alternatives. Hopefully some of them will turn to the God who made them. Again, it's not for us to destroy the environment. We should appreciate it as a love letter from God, but when we see the environment, we should worship the God who made it. People who end up seeing the environment and worship the environment are killing themselves. And ultimately, that's going to become painfully obvious as the news tightens around Mother Earth during this time of tribulation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word that reminds us that not only of the glory and the greatness of nature, but of the fact that you never intended us to worship nature. You wanted us to see it as your expression and see you as separate from it and one that we worship because you made it all. We're sorry for those times when we begin to glorify animals and trees and water and things like that more than you. God, we pray that you will come quickly. We know that as the, the world is immersed in faith in Mother Nature. The only way that they're going to see that there's an alternative is when you begin to shut that down, when you show them in drastic ways how nature can destroy itself because nature doesn't love anything. Nature is not capable of love, but the God who made it is. So come quickly, Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, help us to appreciate what you've made, but to express our appreciation to you, not to be like those in Romans 1 who weren't thankful, but we see your attributes in nature, and then we set our attention on you to praise you. We thank you for what you're going to do, as drastic as it seems, because it's a part of our prayers being answered. We want the alternatives to be removed. We want people to worship only you, and so, God, as you answer our prayers by even allowing these things to happen, we praise you and we say that your purposes are holy and true. And we will always honor you for what you choose to do to make what's wrong right. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.